First of all, let me say, because some people are uncertain about this, what baptism is. It's a matter of going under water, and it's a sign that you finished with the old life, the life without God that you were living before. And then you come up from under the water, and that is a sign that you are resurrected with Christ. You are a new creature in him because the Holy Spirit is in your heart and you are a believer and you have a new identity. You are a Christian now and you will live as a Christian for the rest of your life. It's a most momentous thing, as a matter of fact, to be baptized. Well, just by saying that, I hope I'm making it clear why baptism is important. It's important because conversion is important. It's important because knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord is important. It's important because becoming a new creature in Christ is important. It makes all the difference between being spiritually dead and being spiritually alive. And I can't say anything more drastic than that. So if you haven't yet been baptized, but you're a Christian, I would say you should be baptized. I urge you to move in that direction straight away. And if you were perhaps baptized as a Christian or as an adult from that matter, and you, you have to say in honesty, well, it hasn't actually made me any different. I know it's a sign of being different, but I'm not a different person from what I was before. Then talk to some Christian friend or talk to a pastor about how to become a new creature in Christ and so fulfill the meaning of your baptism in your own life. You know, as a pastor, I am constantly looking for evidence that we as a church are growing. Uh, obviously, we can see that we're growing with a full auditorium, but I mean growing in our relationship with Jesus, growing as a church to be more like Jesus. That's the growth that is the most important as followers of Christ. Evidence of His fruit in our lives, and I'm encouraged in this. Because I do see this evidenced week after week, uh, day after day, as I have conversations uh, with each of you and see that evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life and in that of your family. Uh, one of the, uh, the cool experiences of recent was just last Sunday night. Uh, when we were able to gather together. Uh, thank you, Brad and April, for opening up Jump Mania for us. But uh, that night began with our, our Awana Clubbers uh, saying their sections, reviewing the things that they've learned in Scripture, and, and getting to see that happen uh, with a, a variety of adults and kids. And uh, then they got to go play with their friends, good friends that they've made here at the church, and they were running everywhere and going crazy. And, and uh, to have Josh and Jesse pull our Thrive students aside into one of the side rooms and take some time uh, to work with them through a Bible lesson uh, before they would go and then begin to have the opportunity to just enjoy some time with their friends and the fellowship they'd made. And even seeing those, those teenagers interacting with our younger kids, I always enjoy seeing that dynamic at play. But, but one of the, 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 the 
things that I love the most about those kinds of opportunities is getting to see the adults. Getting to see adults, talking to adults, because you know as well as I do, before a service or after a service, there's not a lot of time to, to engage in conversation. There's not a lot of time to get to know people. It's, it's usually short, and then you got to go because you got a reservation, or you got to beat the other crowds uh, to the restaurants, whatever it may be. And uh, so getting to see that and those conversations and those relationships deepen brought such joy to my heart. And I just I encourage you, when you have those opportunities, when we provide those opportunities, seize them. Seize those times where you can get together and have those conversations and do this create them Create opportunities by inviting people over uh, by inviting them out whatever it takes uh, to build those relationships with one another but but one of the metrics that I really watch to gauge our spiritual maturity as a church is the growing number of Oklahoma Sooner fans <laughs> that we have in, in the congregation. I brought my very sweaty, stained OU hat uh, today. This is, this is mowing now. But as, as many of you have noted, there's a lot more OU hats and OU shirts that make their way around. And you, you heard that that was more amens and, and uh, applause than we've gotten for any sermon, I mean, in a long time. <clears throat> So you get, you get uh, this is, for me, a spiritual metric. I see more and more of that happening, and it brings joy uh, to my 14 Big 12 championship winning heart. <laughs> joy to me. Uh, of course, I, I completely jest in that. Um, being a Sooner fan does not make you more spiritual, more intelligent, yes, uh, but maybe not, maybe not more spiritual. So... But sports and our particular draw to them and, and, and our affinity towards particular teams is an interesting study. I mean, now that, that spring is here, we're moving into summer, you're seeing a lot more cardinal red. You're seeing a little bit of royal blue <laughs> uh, still, still circulating. As we move through the summer and move into the fall, you're going to see a lot of Chiefs red. You're going to see a lot of Mahomes jerseys and, and all sorts of things that are going on because we love our sports teams. I'll never forget my first uh, game day Saturday in Lincoln, Nebraska. So that's where my wife's from, her parents are from, and uh, Everybody, I don't care who you were, you were wearing red. I think they go out and paint their cars red just for that day, then they paint them back on Monday. Because everywhere you go, it's just a sea of red when it comes game day. Even if you're not in Lincoln, you'd be driving out in the middle of the country, they're wearing red because it's game day. We love to support our teams, we love to publicly support our teams. I would put it this way, we love to publicly identify with our teams. And today we are all gathered in this room for the purpose of identifying together. And it's not because of a sports team. It's not because we have some collective civic thing that we want to support and get behind. It's not because of a political party. No, we're gathered together in this room today to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. He's what brings us together. But beyond gathering to sing and pray and serve and learn, how might we further identify with Jesus? I mean, we can wear hats and T-shirts and stick fish on our car, get tattoos, whatever it, it may be. None of those things are wrong. But Scripture teaches us one 
primary way that every individual is called to identify with Jesus. It's unique. It's one time. It's wet. (laughs) It's baptism. It's baptism. Baptism for the Jesus follower is like putting your Cardinals jersey on for the Cardinals fan. You're identifying yourself with Jesus Christ. Baptism is when we go public with our faith in Jesus and our commitment to follow Him. Baptism is the public declaration that we belong to Him. To Him. It's what we learned last week from Acts chapter 2 where Peter urges the crowd that he's just presented the gospel to to believe in Jesus and be baptized. They were called to repentance. He urged them to step out of the crowds, to leave their friends and their their family behind and publicly identify themselves, to go public with their faith as a follower of Jesus. Last week we worked our way through the book of Acts considering this pattern of baptism and showing the, the intimate and immediate connection between a person's uh, confession of faith, their repentance, their regeneration, and being baptized, going public. And so, let's begin here today with this question. What is baptism? In its most general sense, it means to be immersed uh, under the water. That, That is what the Greek word baptizo means. It means to immerse. But I'm going to ask you if you would to turn with me to Acts chapter 8 this morning as we get started. Acts chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 26 This is one of those instances that we briefly looked at last week, and I wanted to dive back into this one particularly. Acts chapter 8, verse 26, as we read about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south and to the road that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a, a court official, of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, and he was seated in his chair, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join the chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asks, Hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch responded, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say? About himself or about somebody else? And Philip opened his mouth and began Beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, 
The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The reason I wanted to share this particular story with you today is because Luke gives us this description here of the process, the mechanics, if you will, of baptism. They came out of the water. He pictures well for us immersion in this particular passage. We're a Baptist church. And so we could ask, what does that mean? And sadly, that label uh, does come with a lot of negative connotation. Um, in our present culture. And uh, many of us as Baptists have not helped that and helped ourselves. But, but we're Baptists for many reasons. And uh, I could list those. But historically, our name comes from this, the mode by which we baptize. Immersion. <laughs> to immerse people. We don't sprinkle. We don't pour. We're not hypercritical of those who do. Right? That's where our bad name sometimes comes into play. But we immerse. We, we dunk because we believe that is what the New Testament teaches. We believe that is the pattern that you see throughout the book of Acts. We believe and we know that that is the literal understanding of the word to baptize is to immerse underwater. But also, as we'll see today, immersion provides us with the best understanding of the pictures of baptism that we see as we consider salvation throughout the scriptures. And that's the direction we will go today. Today we're asking, what does baptism picture? Uh, what is the purpose of it? And so with the help of, of Bobby Jameson in a book called Going Public, there's several pictures, purposes that I want us to consider today. The first is this. Baptism is a public profession of our faith and our repentance. Our faith in Jesus and our repentance from sin and turning to Him. And this is the point that we have already made. This is one of the points that we made last week. Baptism is not meant to be a private affair. Baptism is meant to be public with your repentance and your sin and your faith in Jesus. This is what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, that you are to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 28 when he says that you're to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In being baptized, we are identifying ourselves with the Godhead. The Trinity. Last week I read this helpful quote from Jameson. I wanted to repeat it again because it helps us to understand particularly in Acts 2 in the day of Pentecost and, and in other settings in the first century what this would look like for them. Think about what baptism means in this setting. He writes, you're in a crowd of Jewish people. Uh, some of whom called for Jesus' execution just a few weeks ago. Jesus' disciples are now causing a public spectacle, and they're calling others to join them by believing in Jesus, getting dunked in the water right in front of everyone. So to turn to Jesus in faith and baptism is to identify yourself with Him and His followers and to distance yourself from those who would reject Him. You're making a public profession. A public decision to follow Christ. A decision is sealed publicly in baptism. Baptism, Jameson writes, is how you go public with your newfound faith in Jesus. Without words, the picture of baptism clearly 
and boldly declares that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Second, baptism is a sign of forgiveness. It's a sign of cleansing. The Bible and our own experiences teach us that we're born sinners. We're born dirty. We're born stained with sin and we need something. We need someone outside of ourselves to clean us up. David offers this prayer in Psalm 51. He says, wash me uh, thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He goes on to say, create in me a clean heart. David longs to be clean because he knows he is dirty. Isaiah offers this promise. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. From cover to cover, as we open up and consider the Scriptures, we see pictures and metaphors that describe our need for cleansing. We need cleaned because uh, the, the pervasiveness of sin makes us dirty. And no amount of bleach, no amount of water, no amount of scrubbing Effort on our part can remove the stains. Only the atoning death of Jesus Christ can make us clean. That's why we sing songs like, Are You Washed in the Blood? Nothing but the blood. There is a fountain. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22, I'll, I'll read this for you. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that is opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Baptism obviously offers a visual external picture of the invisible internal cleansing that takes place when Jesus Christ saves us from our sins. Just as the water washes our body clean, so the atoning death of Jesus washes clean our soul. There's a, nothing spiritual about the water. We don't pray over the water. Uh, we don't bless the water before a baptism. The water provides us with a picture, an illustration, a, a metaphor, an object lesson, however you want to put it, that points us to Jesus and Jesus alone as the one who forgives us of our sins. Third, it's a sign of our union with Christ in His death, in His burial, and in His resurrection. One of Paul's favorite phrases to use to describe Christians and followers of Jesus in his letters is this, in Christ. He, he talks about how we are in Christ. Uh, Seventy times that particular phrase is used throughout the New Testament. Uh, and it means to communicate that we, the followers of Jesus, have been spiritually united with Jesus. Check out this verse in Romans chapter number 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, were baptized into His death. 
We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. We find something very similar in Galatians 3.27. Check this verse out as well. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Colossians 2 says this. Having been buried with Jesus in baptism in which you were also raised with Jesus through faith in the powerful working of God. You see, what these passages and others teach is that when Jesus died, so did my old man. So died my sin nature. And when Jesus rose again, so rose my new life. Now, in Christ, a new life began. What Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago on the cross and by way of the empty tomb affects me in this very moment. Because I am spiritually united with Jesus Christ. To this point, Jameson writes this. He says, the physical movements of baptism provide a vivid picture of our being joined in Christ's death, His burial, and His resurrection. We're buried with Christ as we plunge under the water. And in rising from this watery grave, it images now our union with Christ in a new life. So the picture is vividly clear in both the mechanics of immersion and also in the, the mantra that we repeat as we do immerse and baptize those. Later, uh, you will hear me say the words, buried in the likeness of Jesus, death and raised in the likeness of His resurrection to walk in the newness of life. Baptism beautifully pictures for us our union in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And that newness of life leads to the next picture, number four. It's a sign of our new life in Christ. You see, coming up from the water pictures the beginning of a new life. It pictures a resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, the new has come. You see, the, the picture could not be more clear that the person who went into the water is not the same person who comes out of the water. New life is pictured in baptism. Number five, it's a sign of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just last week, we discussed the ministry of John the Baptist, John the, the baptizer. And his ministry was meant to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. This is evidenced in his own admission. Here's what he, here's what he says in Mark chapter 1. He preached and said, after me, John speaking, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie, I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One is more significant than the other. John claims that Jesus will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul repeats this in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slave, free, were all made to drink 
of the one spirit. Baptized into the spirit. And so does this mean, uh, that, that what, what does it mean to be baptized into the spirit? What does this have to do with water baptism? Well, being baptized with the spirit is to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. It's a vivid way of describing the Spirit infusing His life, His light with us as He takes up residence in us. We're the temple. We're the house that contains the Holy Spirit. And so once again, water baptism provides a picture of how the Holy Spirit, by whom we now live, immerses us, overwhelms us, consumes us in our day-to-day -day life. Finally, one more picture. Baptism is a sign of the dawning new creation that's coming in Christ. In just a moment, we're going to baptize Liz Brand. And I love that there's so many here today of her friends and family, her church family, uh, to be a witness to this. It was about two years ago we started talking about baptism. Meeting with you guys about getting married. You're almost to your two-year anniversary and that summer was a little nuts and it was that fall that uh, many of you remember Liz had her horrific accident. And Liz came away from that accident a different person. Not in her spirit. <laughs> She's still the same Liz. But physically, she's different. And we have prayed and we will continue to pray for her healing. That God will give her the mobility that she once had. That God would take away that pain. And friends, we do not pray without hope. Because the truth is we know that healing will one day come. That's the final picture of baptism. Because in just a moment, Liz is going to come up out of that water. And that's meant to remind us and point to the promise that one day she will be resurrected in glory. The burning nerve pain won't be there anymore. The lack of mobility won't be there anymore. As Christ was made new, Liz will be made new. Friends, one day the grief that you feel over the death and the loss of a loved one that many of you have felt for decades that grief will turn to joy. One day the anguish that you feel over broken and destroyed relationships, it'll be no more. One day the pain you feel, the tears that you cry over loved ones who, who are either themselves in pain physically, spiritually. They need Christ. One day Jesus will wipe away those tears. 
Death will be no more, Scripture tells us. Mourning will cease. Back in Romans 6, we read this. If we have been united with Him in death like His. I love the phrasing here. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. The final picture of baptism is that one day we will rise with bodies that are untainted by sin, unharmed by the cruelty of this world. Baptism doesn't just point us backwards. Baptism points us forwards. And it's meant to flood our souls with hope that the pain of this world, that the brokenness of this world, Jesus will redeem it too. And He will make all things new. Aren't these pictures beautiful? What a gift God has given us in this one, what we might consider simple act of baptism. And so today I repeat the question that I asked last week. If you've not been baptized, what's keeping you from going public with your faith in Jesus? What is it that's keeping you from picturing to the watching world the salvation and the hope that Jesus has brought to your life? Friends, don't let rebellion or fear, a lack of understanding or anything else stop you from following the Lord in obedience and making public your faith in what Christ has done for you and what Christ can do for others. And if you're here today and you would say, well, I haven't been baptized because I haven't yet repented. <laughs> I've never confessed my sin. I've never put my faith in Jesus and I'm hearing you talk about how he, he died for me and how when he died, so can I die. Yes, Scripture tells us to repent of our sins, to put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. He substitutes himself for you. I so appreciate what Nathan said earlier. Yes, we're condemned in our sin, but for God's mercy and grace in sending a substitute who's gladly taken our sin, who's gladly given us his righteousness. Cry out to him today. Let today be the day of salvation for you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me in these moments. I want to give you an opportunity to pray. Maybe that is a prayer of commitment. Maybe you are, are hearing these last couple weeks of sermons on baptism and you're saying, I haven't done it, but I need to do it. It's a prayer of commitment. Maybe for you right now, it's a prayer of repentance. It's time to turn from your sin. It's time to turn to Jesus. It's time to ask for Him to save you. And if that's a prayer that you're praying, please let us know. Please encourage us by sharing with us the decisions that you're making today. But I'm going to leave you in this moment of silence for just a couple of minutes as we transition to baptism. And I'll let you pray your prayers of repentance 
your prayers of commitment. But for many of you today, it's going to be this prayer. A prayer of thanksgiving for what Christ has done for you.